Thank you all for joining today's RCM special client event. All attendees are on a muted line and a recording of this event will be available shortly after we conclude. Please allow me to introduce our president and CEO, Greg Fleming. Great, thank you, Tom. Good afternoon, all clients of Rockefeller, our Rockefeller team, and other friends of Rockefeller. Welcome to our uh, third special client event during this historic time. Today's discussion is appropriately entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? Exploring the Current Environment Through the Eyes of Three Prominent Leaders. Well, I'm also pleased to call board members of Rockefeller Capital Management and terrific supporters of all we are building at our firm. Jack Brennan, Chairman Emeritus and Senior Advisor from Vanguard. Jack was President and then CEO and Chairman of Vanguard for over 20 years, instrumental in building one of the most successful and one of the most respected investment firms in history. Shelley Lazarus, Chairman Emeritus, Ogilvy and Mather. Shelley carved a similar path of tremendous success to Jack's, but in the advertising industry, spending more, most of her more than four decades with Ogilvy and Mather. Rising through the ranks to chairman and CEO, position she held for more than 15 years. And our third panelist is Brian Kaufman, portfolio manager and head of private investments at Viking Global Investors. Brian has spent most of the last 15 years in the private equity business, the last 10 at Viking, where, he's, where he has risen through the ranks to lead their private investments and join the management committee. Now, I do feel compelled to point out that Brian began his career in investment banking at Merrill Lynch when I was leading that business, and that training has been a critical part of the success he has subsequently built. Now, we'll start with uh, Jack Brendan. Good afternoon, Jack. Uh, good afternoon, Greg. Thanks for uh, letting me be here, and I'm, I'm impressed that you're one of the thousand fathers of uh, Brian's success. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. Yeah, I, I, he goes third, so I'm not going to let him rebut it by the time we get there. Um, but Jack, why, why don't we start with, um, uh, given uh, the the trajectory of your career and all the different things that you've seen, um, can you talk about uh, this crisis in the context of so many other times of dislocation that you worked through as the CEO of Vanguard? Sure, I've been thinking a lot about that, Greg, uh, over the last month to six weeks, you know, when you you think about what we were all discussing in January and through most of February, it had nothing to do with what we're going to talk about here. Um, and that probably encapsulates some of it, but it's uh, because the the speed and the breadth and the uh, of this uh, market uh, movements and then economic movements is unparalleled, really, uh, I think unparalleled, period, not just in my career or really in our lifetimes by any means. Um, it, it, it really is something. So you, it's, it's, I think, insightful to step back and think a bit about how does it relate to others. And, you know, just in this, um, in this century, we've had three radical uh, bear markets in, in the stock market, uh, where we'd gone for nearly 20 years before that without a meaningful bear market. And I think if you, and I think it's helpful if you look back just a little bit there and you think about the Nasdaq collapse, which started at the uh, turn of the century, and led to a very short and light um, light recession. 
the thing about that one, in my opinion, was it was predictable. It was actually a certainty that there would be a bubble burst, a matter of when, not if. And it, without a real uh, huge economic impact, you know, if you got suckered into it, it's different, it's this time, and you bought a bunch, of, you know, you got dogs.com and babies.com and that stuff, you paid a price. But the economic impact wasn't that meaningful in many ways. So it was really a speculation-driven event and came and went pretty quickly in in so many ways uh again very different than uh, what we're experiencing today you know fast forward a mere seven or eight years and then we get the global financial crisis which in my view was a failure on the part of the financial industry frankly to use restraint on itself and think about all the, the mortgages and everything that uh, led to such a structural uh economic problem I also think it was a failure on the part of regulators to maintain their roles effectively uh, because everybody knew something, but nobody knew everything in the regulatory infrastructure at that at that point in time. And boom, it all blew up at the end of the day when the mortgage house of cards started failing. And you know this, you, you lived it, right? Um, you know, regulatory fragmentation had a, a lot to do with it. But in the end, it, it resulted in uh, both a... a capital and a consumption near depression and in some ways it was avoidable you know and for investors it was certainly avoidable because you could analyze some of the things that led up to problems there was no reason you needed to be a lender to bear stearns or lehman brothers it wasn't genius it was just hard work and uh the ramifications obviously were broad and deep because it wasn't just consumers it was corporations it was governments you know, and I think today the question is how long enduring will the uh, challenges we're going through right now specifically be? It feels as though it's consumer at some level because we're all sitting at home or somewhere else right now. You know, so the depth and breadth of this one is unknown. It's likely to be far more meaningful than what we saw at the beginning of the century based on a little bit of uh, stock market activity. But I think the question here with this different catalyst, you know, this is truly a black swan. You know, you'll remember we were talking about black swans a lot, Greg, back in uh, in the middle of and then after the global financial crisis. And the, lots of things were, and even pandemics were mentioned uh, as a potential black swan, but I don't think anybody thought this could happen this quickly, have the health ramifications and societal ramifications of those health, of those health challenges and the immediate uh, economic implications with 20 million Americans applying for uh, for unemployment insurance in a, in a, in a uh, single month in the shutdown of certainly the local economies. Um, so for me, that is the biggest difference here, speed, breadth, and then you add a societal implication, not just economic or markets implication. I think it's very, very different. The bright side, I would say, and again, you, you know this, incredibly well is the financial superstructure in place today is so much better than it was 10 years ago. And I think that ought to be a point of optimism for all of us as we think about the, the unknowns ahead of us. But the banking system is the strongest it's been in decades. And the oversight of, the, of securities and banking and other financial industries is uh, the best it's been in decades. And so for me, I think you know, there's, this, is, this has the potential to be 
continually severe, but I would I think we we go into it in a much better place than we did the global financial crisis. That's kind of my century survey of of how this relates. Um, but again, n- none of us thought we'd be having this conversation as little as two months ago or six months ago, never mind a year or two ago. Yeah, Jack, uh, that was a terrific overview. And, and frankly, uh, as you said, we were both uh, you know, front row seats, so uh, it, it brings you back and you compare and contrast. But w- one of the questions I'd have as a follow-up, just listening to you, because you, you were there uh, running Vanguard through uh, uh, the turn of the century, September 11th, the credit crisis. Um, the lessons you take away uh, from those moments and this one uh, that that are 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 always germane and always relevant uh, because there are things that that you do in response to this or those uh, and and uh, you know nobody better than you to opine on that. Well, listen, there. I I think of that as from various perspectives. But just think about uh, as an organization, Merrill Lynch or Vanguard or whatever during that period of time. First, and nobody demonstrated this better than you during that crisis. Who's a real leader? Who can handle adversity? Who do you want to be in a foxhole with? You know, a trite expression, but very real, very real. And th- and that to me is one of the things that's a benefit of all these things when they happen is you learn a lot about yourselves and your and your teams. You know, what do you really stand for? Are you about short-term profits or are you about something more than that? Do you find out how do you who do you think your key assets are? You know, is it the balance sheet or do you think it's your employees, your customers, your brand as the real assets and protecting them as priority number one? Those are those are great lessons as a as a as an organization. Um, you know, as a market participant um, and as a competitor, you know, you you get the you get a window again of uh, who are likely to be the winners who aren't, who are uh, momentum, you know good times competitors and who are all weather competitors. It's, it's a, it, and it, there's a lot of lessons in that in names alone, frankly. Um, you know, and then again, I think about you and I go back to, you know, living, living through that last crisis and the, and, and nine 11, you know, five o'clock every night that week, we're talking to Harvey Pitt. Should we open the markets and not open the markets? Right. You, you, you get a chance to learn and say, what can be better for our clients and the integrity of markets that we're learning as we go through this challenging period of time? And then you have an opportunity, I think, if you're an industry leader to step back and make a difference and work with regulators and others to make changes for the for the better. So, you know, I, I look at every um, I look at everything like this as a great learning experience and a chance to come out of it better than even into it as a company, as a competitor, as an individual, as a leader, all those things. So. You know, there are dark times, but there's something bright at the end of the tunnel for that as well. Well, that's spot on. Uh, and again, nobody brings it uh, with, uh, with more experience. Are there, are there um, you know, firms uh, that, that you specifically admire looking at it over the course of multiple crises, multiple difficult times, multiple decades that seem to get it right, you know, time in and time out during times like this? Absolutely. You know, and, and listen, the market tells you, right? So if you go back and say over a long cycle, who are the winners? Those are the firms. Those are the firms. You know, we, we hope Vanguard is one of those. We think they are. We think the company is. We, we, we try to build the place like that. But, 
you know, there are firms like BlackRock and T. Rowe and Fidelity in our business who we have great admiration and respect for. They've come through all these things and they think long term, you know, they're good corporate citizens or good industry citizens when it comes time to fix things. So, you know, those names, you know, I kind of hate to compliment them, but, you know, once in a while you got to be a nice guy. Um, you know, Blackstone in the private market space, just look what they've done. As, as a firm through in various sectors and in a different way, you look at a firm like Sequoia, who's so such a great uh, venture firm who avoids the fads, but just substantially delivers value. You know, they have a few things, Greg, in common, you know, they, they, they uh, will tell it like it is to their clients and, and to the world as necessary. They learn from each crisis and get better. And I do think back to an earlier point, they, they, stock price and if they have one and short-term profits in the back seat and the front seat is about employees and clients. And if you think about it, you know these firms and you know their histories and in my case have competed with them or invested with them uh, in various places. Um, they all do that and there are plenty of others, but those, those are names that to me come to the fore. And if you look at where they sit in their market segments, they're the long-term winners. And so that that's the lesson, you know, believe the data, if you will. That's terrific. And, and I can say uh, 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 confidently and, and fairly that Vanguard is certainly in that uh, on that list and uh, no, no small part because of your leadership over so many years. Jack, if we shift gears and we look at investors, individual investors, uh, you know, uh, your views on, on how they respond to events like this. I mean, the events are different. Obviously, the, the near term reaction is always different. Um, but, uh, you know, put yourself, I mean, Vanguard has literally millions of clients. Uh, you know, wh what are they thinking? What do you think the tone is today? Uh, just a little bit from the individual investor standpoint. Well, it's fun. You know, first, first and foremost, the individual investors react far better than you'd think if you watch the CNBC or Red News headline. Just accept that as a fact it is. Um, and listen, at, at the margins, they, they you get activity. But the core of the individual investor knows they're in a game that's a long game. So they really don't do much, Greg, and that's what they should do, right? If you're, uh, this month's activity is a blip in a 40 or 50 year investing thing. So I have immense respect for individual investors, whether they're doing it themselves or being advised. And I always cringe at the headlines and the, and the, and the stories that make it sound like there are people perched on the ledge. They aren't. And you know, I talked to my pals at Vanguard and they said, it's exactly that, that they're, that's a great window in the world. And they are processing this for what it is and not re, not overreacting to it because it's in the context of running an investment plan for decades, not quarters or years. And I think that's really good news. It's good news for the markets, frankly. Uh, that's great. Uh, and that's been our experience too. And our advisors and clients, I mean, there's just a steady, calm reaction uh, you know, they, they listen to the counsel of, uh, of, of our advisors and uh, they, um, you know, they, they react um, in a much more thoughtful manner, as you said, uh, than, uh, than, you know, the, the fast talking people on, on TV would, would indicate. Uh, Jack, can we shift uh, in another direction? Because you've got so many hats. Um, you were the chairman of FINRA for, for many years and uh, Shelly and I were on the board with you when you were running it. Um, so you've got a unique lens into regulators. Uh, what what do regulators uh, focus on during periods of uh, crisis? 
So listen, they start with safety and soundness of the markets, right? And infrastructure at a broad level, and then importantly at the firms, you know, will markets operate clear, how's liquidity? They're very interested in that. Um, second, they want to know how firms are, are behaving for their clients. You know, our firms out there uh, engage with clients, uh, being candid, holding calls like this, they're of value to their clients. So they want to know how the firms themselves are engaging, uh, you know, in a, um, they, they, they're evaluating firms at the same time, Greg, as you know, for engagement, for agility, for uh, their, their, should they worry about that part of the oversight? And I'd say the last thing they think a lot about is, are there bad guys out there trying to take advantage? And that's why having people like Jay Clayton at the SEC or Robert Cook at FINRA, who are very experienced in these spaces, and they can set a tone for the mix of making sure the markets work, which is so vitally important, but they're just as importantly that investors are protected here. The firms are the, the front of that, but it's a complicated thing. But if you get, you know, FINRA's mark, FINRA's um, ma mantra is uh, investor protection and market integrity. That's what regulators think about. And listen, I, I give them very high grades uh, through this situation right now in this unprecedented time. Uh, uh, I watch with interest, obviously, but I think it, I think they've done a great job so far. And I'm really glad they didn't listen to the commentary at saying close the close the stock market because it's going down. You know, markets are markets. You can't pretend things aren't happening by shutting the door. Yeah, I completely agreed on, uh, on on a the way they've handled this, and uh, that that would extend. I think uh, obviously the Fed has been so active and and so on the front foot, um, and I completely agree with you on the markets. Jack, what about um, if we if we lift out industry again? Uh, you've been part of this industry almost. Uh, you know, you went through the the periods of spectacular growth in the '80s and '90s. When you look at the asset management industry and the wealth management industry, which you've got a great window into. Um, do you see any any more fundamental change coming out of of uh, you know the COVID nineteen crisis and everything we're going through now? What, what will there be uh, things that that look very different in a year, two, five? I think actually it would be a continuation an accentuation of two trends, Greg. Uh, important trends. Um, one is shared by asset management and wealth management. You know, I've talked about it. I call it a flight to trust. Whether it's a large institution or a, or a, or a uh, family, this is another place where you get a chance to find who do you trust, who has who defines success for the firm and for them as individuals by their client success, plain and simple. And every shock here highlights that as the core element of what the relationship should be based upon. And I think, and you've seen it with consolidation in lots of parts of the asset management business, and I think it's very real. So I think that's going to be even accentuated again to the best firms that are going to uh, are going to be in demand. They're going to have to ration capacity at some level, um, whether it's institutionally or with uh, with high net high net worth investors and families. The second trend is specific to wealth management, and it's the awareness that's just growing every day that it's hard to do this yourself. It's hard to do this yourself. I had this great client at FedEx who used to say. Every day when somebody retired, we created a financial entrepreneur who now had to deal with income, outgo, strategy. And the question is, should you do that by yourself or should you hire a professional to help you? 
And what's become increasingly aware, I think, particularly to the baby boomer generation, but to others as well, is that good, objective, high-quality advice pays for itself. And again, every time there's a dislocation or a period of stress, to me, you, um, you come back and say, How, can I do this myself or should I get a trusted advisor to do it with me? And the options available to you today at various price points, various levels of sophistication are greater than they've ever been. And I think that's gonna, this is gonna be a, another catalyst to accentuate that trend and I think it's a great thing for the American investor, frankly, that they really get an opportunity to realize this, that it's easy to build a 401k plan. It's hard as heck to manage it for the rest of your life. Boy, Jack, uh, that is so spot on for what we're trying to do at Rockefeller Capital Management uh, and not rehearsed. Uh, but I'll, I'll take uh, those two trends, the, the, the fight to those you trust and those who you rely on for objective advice and counsel. That is everything we're about. So it's terrific to hear. Um, uh, pulling it all together here, um, you know, the highs and lows in the economy, markets over decades, uh, advice you want to leave clients with in terms of what they uh, they should be looking for going forward. And nobody's got the crystal ball, but just, uh, you know, Jack Brennan on, uh, on, on, uh, on what's in front of us. I guess I'd say a couple of things. One, it's a long game. Just keep that in perspective all the time um, for all of us, you know, 165. I hope I'm worried about my money for a few decades to come, right? So it's not a quarter or a year or anything else. And so I think it's always important to keep that perspective. The other perspective I always love is Warren Buffett's, which is don't bet against America. And uh, I think about my own, I graduated from college. It, uh, in the worst recession since the Great Depression. I then graduated from business school in the worst recession since the Great Depression. And I started at Vanguard two years later in the worst recession since the Great Depression. You could call that inadvertent, inauspicious in timing, right? But I think about it all the time because perspective matters. The Dow was 800 the day I started at Vanguard. It had crossed 1,000 in 1968. So that long game thing, I think, is vitally important. And then to me, I would use the, the past few months or the next few as a learning experience for everybody, for the families we, we serve, for the advisors to force ourselves to step back and just say, what did I learn? What am I learning from this latest disruption to my financial life? and come back and ask about our own risk tolerance, our time horizons, how we think about things, how, how comfortable are we with our partners, et cetera. It's a great learning experience, Greg. And you know, in the end, and I'll close because more interesting people than me are, are gonna come on here. Uh, there's a, you're a big quote guy. My favorite quote on all this stuff is this. It's a, it's a, uh, a Winston Churchill quote, which is that a pessimist sees a difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. And for me, that's the way all of us should be thinking about tomorrow, the next week, the next month, come what may in the short run. But uh, the opportunity here is to learn and become better as companies, as investors, as advisors. Um, and I, that, that's the last word I would leave with, uh, with uh, our clients and friends. That's tremendous. Uh, that's a, a great quote as well. Uh, 
I am before uh, we shift to Shelley, going to ask you one thing that takes us a little bit farther afield, but uh, you are the chairman of the board of the trustees at University of Notre Dame, and there are people wondering about uh, when we'll get uh, sports back in the college world, including Notre Dame football. Do you have any insight for us on that? <laughs> Well, the vice president met with Vice President Pence met with a bunch of uh, commissioners and Notre Dame because we're an independent, and we all have one objective, which is to uh, be on the field come uh, Labor Day weekend. And for now, I'm Winston Churchill, and I'm seeing I'm seeing the opportunity in this difficulty, particularly because I think we have a hell of a team, and I'm kind of I've already booked the uh, I booked a room for the semifinals of the uh, the playoffs, so I don't want to be disappointed. That's great, Jack. I know uh, the extent of Notre Dame football support in the Brennan household. So thank you so much. This has been uh, fantastic. Okay. Uh, and uh, I'm going to shift over to uh, Shelly Lazarus. Shelly, uh, good afternoon and welcome. Thank you, Greg. Happy to be here. Great to have you and I uh, have you now on the heels of your, your longtime friend, uh, Jack Brennan. So um, if we shift, Shelly, to a, a topic that you're uh, that uh, you have great expertise on over over many years and many clients. Um, there is a lot of noise out there, a lot of communication coming at everybody. Articles predicting everything in the medical space, articles predicting everything in the investment space, people telling us what to do personally with our money, and uh, a lot of noise. Can you can you summarize or, or tell us what's working and what doesn't, and, and how is it evolving and Who's getting a, a a crisp message out against the you know the all the all the noise that's out there? Well, it, it's a it's a great question. You know, I've heard um, the adage so often that in in times of crisis and disruption, you can't over communicate. Uh, I think we might be seeing a little bit of that. I, I don't know how many um, emails a day you get, but uh, informing me of what any organization I ever had anything to do with is doing about COVID-19. Uh, I don't think a lot of it's breaking through, but but I think th this really is a, a, an unprecedented time. And I think we're trying to figure out how to communicate. It, it was, um, it's been very interesting to me to see the evolution of messaging just over the last few weeks. You know, you had that first phase where you were cringing at some of the advertising that was being run, given what was going on in the world. And that was just, I think there were some uh, companies, clients, that they just couldn't catch it in time to pull what would no longer be an appropriate commercial message, given what was going on in the world. Then we had phase two, which I would call the sort of self-congratulatory, uh, we're so amazing, we can hardly stand ourselves, you know, Back in World War One, we did this. Back in World War Two, at you know, at the, during 9/11, and and I think, again, looking at that, people realized that wasn't right either. That's just not the right tone, and and so it pivoted again to I think recognition of the employees of a firm, and pivoted even once more now to um, tributes being paid to. Uh, the, the frontline workers and how we are all in debt to them. And, and you might ask, you know, sort of usually most messaging has a commercial end. Uh, for many of these companies, they don't have things to buy right at the moment. It's not available the way it used to be. 
So th- these are great brand moments. That's I think what people have come to realize is it's at moments like these that you either build or diminish your brand. People are paying attention. They, they want to see how brands, companies react in, in times like this. And I think that um, trying to find your authentic brand voice at a moment like this is what's critically important. Um, you, you've got to be true to your brand. Uh, you can't just sort of make it up now at, because these are difficult times. And I think, you know, great brands have points of view. They have tones of voice. Great brands have souls, actually. And if there were ever a moment where you want to demonstrate the soul of your brand, uh, it it would be now. I've said many times that people decide, rightly or wrongly, who the good guys are and the bad guys are. And and this is a moment to affirm, you know, that you are a company that does the right thing, that has the right values, uh, and uh, and that this is, uh, you are a company that can be trusted. I would add one more thing. I think this is a time when people, it's all about people, it's all about humanity, uh, it's all about compassion and empathy. And uh, I think all communication now, it has to be more about the heart than the head, which is not always what, what different organizations, the, the place different organizations will go. But it's about soul, it's about heart, it's about, it's about compassion. I think, I think companies will be judged by the way they treat their employees. I think this is critically important that the world's going to look over your shoulder and see how you're treating the people who are in your company. And I think it's on this basis, frankly, that the world will judge who the, the, guy, the good guys are and the bad guys are going forward. And Shelly, uh, along those lines, one of the things that you've said to me is that um, it, it does have to be authentic, though. If, uh, you know, if you wake up and you decide that you know, from a, a tactical standpoint, that's a smart thing to do, and you start uh, saying how how terrific your employees are, but that's not how you treated them historically. Your employees are going to say, uh, "That's not that's not that's not my life here." Uh, it does have to be authentic. Absolutely right. I mean, you know, sort of. I've been in meetings where you know the leader stands at the front and it's a difficult moment and starts you know spewing forth about how important employees are, and your first clue is the eye rolls, the looks away, the uh, if it's if it's not authentic, it's not going to work. You will be found out in about five minutes. And one of the things I've been paying attention to in the press is there've been all these articles. You know, the the press gets a story and they and they run with it. And but there are enough articles about companies where uh, the safety of the employees is not coming first, where it doesn't seem to be important. And, and I think those are the brands that will suffer uh, as we come through this. And Shelly, uh, as, as, we, as we look forward now, um, you know, question around uh, when, when, when the messaging will start to shift to something that, uh, you know, as people start to go back to work and back into society again, how quickly will companies move into a more normal mindset or, or stated differently, um, you know, does when does the company uh, 
show less restraint and 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 start focusing on um, you know a message where they're they're back trying to sell their product and take market share. You know how how quickly do you think that will occur and and uh, you know what what form will it take coming out of this? Because uh, as you said, at this point there's almost nobody left. All the all the tone deaf uh, moments have have been drilled out in the last four or six weeks. But but when does it start to shift the other way? And what will be the the uh, the 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 uh, bench posts that tell companies it's safe to say please buy my car or however they do it? Well, I I think the answer is very slowly. I mean, we had the experience of 9-11 that took much longer, I think, than anyone anticipated. Um, I think people are very sensitive now. Um, and, uh, and so I think you have to tread very lightly uh, as we return to a more normal, if, if, you know, there'll be a new normal, I think, uh, of, of uh, commercial activity. Uh, but I would always err on the side of being too slow rather than arriving there before anyone's ready. Yeah. And Shelly, you've been in the in the C-suite so many times, advising so many executives and companies. Um, any any uh, and, and Jack talked about this as well. Uh, common elements of great leadership. Uh, you know, what advice do you give uh, in, in times like this? And you know, if you want, we could do the flip side as well. Uh, you know, common elements of uh, of poor leadership. But uh, you've seen an awful lot of the the good and the and the bad, and you've given a lot of counsel over a lot of crises. Well, I think you know, Greg, you hit on it, the, the first one before, which is you know, inauthenticity. It's just sort of you can't all of a sudden come out and sort of go, you know, my these are my values now, and because. Uh, uh, you will be found out. I mean, this sounds silly, but truth telling is is probably the most important thing that uh, uh, to focus on because um, you just have to tell people the truth because they know when you're not telling the truth. And I think at times like this, it's really difficult. I, I saw a communication from the CEO just like an hour ago that that said, I know a very large company, and he said, I know you all want to hear that life is soon going to go back to normal and uh, everyone who was employed before will be employed again. And he said, it's just not going to happen. I can't tell you exactly what that means, and I wish I could, but, but there was an honesty to the communication that I think ma made it real and it made you trust him. So I think this ability... Uh, to communicate clearly, but also with hope. You know, you have people have to have hope. If the leader doesn't have hope, then why should anybody else? And so I think a little bit to the to Jack's theme of, you know, you got to look for the long term. As as the leader, you have to make people understand that we will get through this. Uh, you know, this this will be better, uh, and uh, and we've been through things before, and and we'll get there again. So I think the ability to offer um, reasonable optimism with hope. It, it's an art form, but it, it, it really is the, the secret to uh, effective communication. I also think the other thing I would say is you got to walk the walk. I mean, if you've been saying it's all about people from the beginning of time, now's the moment to demonstrate it because everyone's paying attention. And if you violate what you've been talking about, 
it's going to be very hard to regain the trust and the confidence of the people who work with you and uh, uh, and for you. That's uh, it's uh, spectacular advice. Um, uh, uh, I'm going to shift gears on you uh, to a, another topic that I know you've got insight on, and that's um, you know with all of the the different medical expertise in your own family, you've got real real color on the front lines of the medical uh, care workers who are dealing with COVID-19. Um, any insight uh, you want to provide the group on, on uh, uh, how, things, uh, how things are going on the front lines? Well, so it, here, here's a, a great example, I think, of uh, people who understand communications. I'm on, the, I'm on the board of New York Presbyterian. Every single day for the last month, the chief operating officer has gotten on a, a Zoom call at 10 o'clock in the morning. It goes out to everybody in the entire system who's working uh, at New York Presbyterian. And Laura does an update. She gives insight into things that are happening um, because they recognize that if, if their people are just a tad less motivated on any day, that's what's gonna make all the difference uh, in the world. So things are leveling there. Um, there's been steady improvement over, over the last five days. I heard from them yesterday, which I find extraordinary as you look across the country. Um, Steve Corwin, the, the president of New York Presbyterian said, there are 1,400 empty beds at the Cleveland Clinic, which is just remarkable. At UCSF and at San Francisco, there are only, I believe, 16 cases of COVID. And so you start to wonder, are they just early in the curve? Uh, is New York and, and the Northeast uh, in, in a different place? Um, I, I will say that the great thing is both the Cleveland Clinic and UCSF are, have been sending teams of doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists to New York to help out because New York seems to be so disproportionately hit right at the moment. But, um, but I have to say that the sense from New York Presbyterian is um, that things are leveling and that, you know, it's gonna take weeks, but that they're starting to see where we might start getting to a point where the number of cases is, is in a downturn. And Shelley, if we if we build on that uh, optimistic note, uh, how do you see? Because again, you've got multiple perspectives on this. Um, uh, the path to normalcy uh, from here. What what are some of the steps uh, that you would see uh, us taking, leadership taking? I mean, there's clearly a major debate and the lack of symmetry at all levels of leadership from a a political and governmental standpoint, but what steps make sense to you from in, in terms of a, a path back, a path to some version of normalcy? Well, I think the real issue for everybody is safety. Um, you know, if people felt safe, they'd, they'd be happy to go back to work and go to restaurants and theaters and all that. So the real path is a vaccine. I mean, you know, which and that is going to be, from everything I understand, at least 18 months off. So if you don't step back from a vaccine and maybe we have uh, some therapies, but then, then the important thing is testing. I mean, the way you can feel safe in going back to work would be if there was some way of knowing 
who has the, the virus, who's recovered from the virus. And, and so I think that's, you know, when it's a clear pass. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about the other day was um, also the experience uh, after 9-11, Greg, you and I were talking about it. You know, everyone felt that after a little bit of time, people and the, and the world was open again, that people in New York would just naturally go back. That didn't happen at all. They did go back and it's, you know, better than ever. But it, we have to remember, it took months to sort of encourage people to go out, to live life again, um, to remind them of the, you know, sort of the, the fun of being out there, of interaction, of, you know, we created events, the Tribeca Film Festival was, uh, uh, came about as a result of that, just as a way of getting people out. So I think what we have to, it, I don't think it's going to happen naturally. I think people are going to need encouragement. And, the, and the, the most obvious way to encourage them is to do those things that will make it feel safe. Yeah, that's terrific. Uh, um, one more uh, focus for you, uh, given all of the different boards you've sat on over the years, uh, big firms, small firms, not-for-profits. What does a board focus on at a time like this? I thought that would be uh, something interesting that we haven't talked about yet uh, for, uh, for uh, those who listen to these. Uh, can you give a little bit of insight into the board shortlist in a crisis like this? Well, I think, you know, in the short term, you know, cash uh, is always, that, that, comes, that comes up uh, readily. Um, I think what's happening with, em, with uh, employees and the, the employee base and how we think about that going forward and, and how to retain, motivate, you know, sort of think about who's essential and, and how to make sure that we get through this and come out on the other side with the people we want and need and are gonna make all the difference to the future. I think maybe though the most important role the board can play is that long-term view. It is to, is to while we're you know, focusing on uh, getting through the next months, and it's, it's that view of what do we wanna be when we come out of this? You know, how can we do what we do right now better? We're having all these new experiences of things we never thought about before, but we're behaving in ways, uh, you know, all this remote work and, and things like that that we never thought we'd do before. I think it's the board that sort of says, no, just keep focusing on, on the long-term because uh, we could in fact come out of this stronger than we've ever been. That's terrific. Uh, that's a great spot to end, and uh, and I've been uh, receiving that counsel from you and uh, and Jack and Brian and the board. So, uh, Shelley, that was terrific, and the range of insights, uh, the range of topics. It's fun. Yeah, we, we could do that as I could with Jack for hours. Um, I'm going to shift uh, to uh, Brian uh, Kaufman. Brian, how are you today? Hey, good, Greg. How you doing? All good. Uh, and uh, Brian, we, we have a, a, a different set of topics that we can talk through, uh, starting with a, a, a place that you've got great insight in the alternatives universe. Uh, and you've got different types of firms uh, competing there, hedge funds, private equity firms, venture capital. Could you talk a little bit about um, 
and I know you can't talk about Viking specific uh, products, performance, et cetera, but if we leave Viking aside and just talk about the industry, uh, can you talk about the, the, the firms and the, the better firms in each of those spaces and uh, what are they most focused on at this point in time? Sure. Um, let's see. I mean, I guess starting with all three of those, the one common theme I'd say I'd expect to see at any of those asset managers would be a, a pretty profound focus on liquidity. Uh, and that's just taking stock of how well positioned companies in their portfolio uh, are with respect to cash on the balance sheet, access to cash. And the old trite adage about cash being king uh, has definitely rang uh, true uh, fewer times more than now. And uh, aside from that, though, I agree those, those three classes are pretty dis uh, dissimilarly situated. I think if you want to start with uh, VC, um, especially some of the earlier stage companies, these guys don't raise enough cash in their balance sheets. They typically don't have access to sizable credit facilities. Um, I think they're probably resorting to applying for some of the SBA loans. Uh, I know companies are laser focused on cutting expenses, uh, trying to assess how much cash runway they have uh, before they run out of capital. And what you really haven't seen in a while, but are starting to see is an unprecedented wave of venture-backed companies furloughing and, and really in some cases just laying off large parts of their workforce. Um, when you think about capital options, it's, it's fairly difficult to go out and initiate a new capital raise here. I think if you do, it will probably be on pretty hawkish terms. Uh, you probably have some CEOs looking around the boardroom seeing if any of the insiders can throw them a lifeline. Uh, otherwise, they're probably going to be forced to take uh, pretty dilutive deals or, or worse. And from the, the VC vantage point, I just, you know, when you've got 100 or so investments in a fund, it's, it's really difficult to throw 100 lifelines out. Um, so we'll see how it shakes out. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a number of these businesses uh, have struggled surviving. And then the ones that do survive probably have a pretty good shot at coming out stronger uh, in an absence of, of competition. And the, the PE industry is, uh, is very different. Uh, I mean, some of the same stresses, but, uh, you know, uh, what's going on there, um, I think we put in a different bucket. So could you talk about uh, PE, which is uh, near and dear to both your heart and mine? <laughs> yeah, I, it's a pretty broad uh, set of strategies I'd, I'd probably lump in under PE. I think if you're a distress fund, you're probably looking at this as a once in a decade type opportunity. Uh, I think you'll see a lot of large funds going out to raise quick uh, distress funds. I think I saw Oak Tree announce they were going to raise something like $15 billion on Wednesday. That's the largest ever. Um, and if you're more of a mainstream traditional uh, private equity fund, I think they're probably looking at the dislocation pretty similar to how you guys at Rockefeller are, which is it's a pretty great time to go out and play offense. There's a trillion and a half of dry powder on the sidelines here. There's going to be companies out in the broader market with just enormous holes in their balance sheets. Uh, I don't know that the Treasury has enough money inside those printing presses to fix all of them. Uh, and so if you're out trying to make new deals, I think it's going to be a pretty fantastic time uh, for new deal making activity. I think if you take sort of a more introspective look, uh, you've got to be a little bit worried about your uh, presumably levered portfolio. Uh, <laughs> leverage is just that. It's a, it's a multiplier. And having been levered long only equities the past decade has been a great benefit. Uh, but that leverage cuts both ways. And if you have a, a material de uh, deterioration in fundamentals, I think that's just going to really cut the equity values on a lot of these companies if we don't get sort of a classic V-shaped recovery. 
Um, I think, again, these guys are focused on liquidity too. A lot of the PE back companies, most of them had access to revolving credit lines uh, almost immediately after the economy got shut down. The first step was for folks to go out and draw on these lines. Um, and then, you know, it's a goal to go cut expenses and, and, and really stay focused on liquidity and burn because you don't know how long you're going to be going without revenue. <laughs> I, I, I was actually talking to my team earlier. The, the interesting point to make here is that in each micro instance for each company looking at themselves, the right decision is to go out and cut expenses, uh, you know, be really prudent about cash burn. The problem is that when all companies in a broader ecosystem are doing that, it gets scary to think about the, the macro environment. And I'm oft reminded that one company's expense is another company or even workers' revenue. And so it, it's just not the case that everyone can afford to cut expenses really quickly and not have that ripple through uh, the macro economy in a, in a broader sense. Yeah, which is one reason why the whole thing that we were, I was talking with Shelley about, uh, what's the path to normalcy? Because uh, how and when we start to get people back in a safe fashion is going to be so key for the, the macro and a lot of the companies you're talking about. Um, what about, Brian, if we go to the third category, uh, uh, hedge funds, which you're also obviously very familiar with? Yeah, I mean, hedge funds, uh, they exist, at least in theory, for market environments like this. I mean, if you think about a hedge fund, it is supposed to be exactly that, which is hedged. They obviously own stocks where they have long exposure, and then they're short stocks, and they're supposed to go out and run with balanced risk. So if I think about sort of a classic long-short equity hedge fund, uh, you might find a company that's got $100 of investor capital. They would go out and own $100 of long exposure, and they would have maybe $60 on average of short exposure. So we would say that they have a net market exposure of 40% or $40, just the, the longs minus the shorts. And so what that means is that uh, you should have about you know, four-tenths of the directional uh, move of whatever the market is doing, and any out or underperformance thereafter is a, a function of alpha and how well you, you outperformed or didn't. And so what's going to be interesting is that given the 11-year bull market we're at the tail of, um, I think it's, it's been really hard to short stocks. And a lot of folks have gotten lulled into a false sense of comfort. You can start cutting corners on shorts, putting on lazy ones. And it's not like you get to wake up every day as a hedge fund manager and, and get the feedback on how you're doing of whether or not you've been managing risk very well. And, and what does happen is that sort of every two, five, or 10 years, you get this completely outsized wild event like COVID, and the market gives you a pop quiz and issues a, a report card. And, you know, again, you didn't get a warning that this is coming real fast. You had to have been managing risk prudently the entire time. And so I think you're going to find that there's going to be a lot of separation in the performance of some funds here. Uh, some funds are going to thrive in this environment. I think the top ones should even be up in positive territory year to date. Uh, I think some funds are going to be down in line with the market. And, you know, what's challenging is when you've been out charging two and 20 type economics versus long only managers charging a fraction of that. And then you fail the pop quiz and do just as badly in a down market. Uh, you've got to sort of justify your existence to your clients. And I can't imagine those are particularly good conversations. But I'd say, you know, more broadly on the hedge fund side, I think uh, I'd expect to see sort of a reduction in exposure, uh, at least until people get pretty good comfort into what's going to come next. 
um, that usually manifests as, as shrinking your overall book, taking down both longs and shorts, and maybe actually sizing down even your favorite positions, just because you have to have you know inherently less conviction in their prospects from here, given the uh, uncertainty that's abound. Uh, that was a, uh, as clear an overview of, of that space as I've, I've heard. Uh, Brian, let's shift gears because you do a fair amount of investing in, in, the, in, in this space and, and you've got insight into the medical industry, uh, investing more in, in biotech and innovative medical technology companies. So can you, uh, everybody's interested in this and it's still an evolving picture. Can you speak a little bit about the diagnostic and therapeutic state of play regarding COVID-19? Sure. Uh, let me, I guess, tackle those separately. Um, I'll start with the more pessimistic one, which is on the therapeutic side. I, I would broadly say you're looking at four large classes of drug approaches here. Uh, that'd be antiviral, anti-inflammatory, uh, which can do things like manage an overreactive immune response. And then you have antibodies and vaccines. Uh, vaccines probably being the holy grail. Um, there's somewhere of around 100 different approaches being rapidly developed, tested, some novel, some uh, old drugs trying to be repurposed. Um, and I think the unfortunate and somewhat harsh reality here is that none of the novel therap therapies, uh, antibodies or vaccines, really have a legitimate chance of being approved and developed, uh, at least not for the mainstream, at least until 2021. I think uh, early 21 would be a heroic effort. It's possible. Um, but not particularly likely, and, and maybe you get lucky on some combination of repurposed drugs. I know uh, Gilead had an unintentional readout this morning. I know Trump's been tra uh, touting hydroxychloroquine. It's hard to say how much of this has been placebo effect, how much is actually uh, having an impact. I'm pretty confident from the work we've done, none of them represent sort of the single silver bullet to cure everything. They might all be uh, effective in their own right. Um, but I think you're just, you're going to be a while. And so we're going to have to find other paths uh, to be able to reopen the economy. And that's, I guess, where I think diagnostics uh, is going to come in. Um, you guys have probably heard about some of these. There's, there's really two main classes of diagnostics being discussed. One is uh, called PCR-based tests. And what these are doing is basically looking for small fragments of the virus uh, inside your body, and they signal an active infection. The problem is it won't tell you if you have had the virus in the past or if you're naturally immune and just won't get the virus. And it's, it's frankly a little bit maddening to consider what have been the shortcomings in getting these tests to scale. Uh, it's not the technology. It has been things like the only FDA-approved nasal swab manufacturer was based in northern Italy, and they shut down for a while. It's that we never contemplated testing hundreds of millions of people, uh, and the number of reagents that are using them are all being fought over by the various suppliers. And so you really have right now just an inability to get the testing to the volumes that we need. The last count I saw a few days ago, I think the country was able to do about 150,000 tests a week. Maybe it's 200, 250K now. Uh, that's going to have to be well north of a million. Some people think it should be closer to 10 million a day. Um, and so it's, it's got a ways to go. There's a number of smart folks uh, from industry pooling together, working on the White House uh, task force for COVID testing. And I'm optimistic that this is weeks away, not months, uh, but they've got their work cut out. And just figuring out the logistics for getting this many people tested in short time is going to be challenging. 
the other end is uh, something called serology tests, and this is basically trying to detect if you have produced antibodies against the virus. And these are, are pretty cheap to make. They can be self-administered. They have fast turnaround times, and we shouldn't have too much trouble getting access to them. I think Roche came out this morning or yesterday. Uh, they're saying that they should have 100 million of these tests by May. Abbott's got in the tens of millions of them being produced. Uh, the challenge here, though, is that the sensitivity and specificity for the tests, which is the false positive, uh, true positive, false positive, true negative, false negative rates, uh, they're not perfect. And having something like 90 or even 95% sensitivity and specificity doesn't sound too bad. It sounds pretty good. But when you're testing 300 million people and there's very low prevalence of the disease in the uh, broader country, it just leads to some pretty poor insights. And so I think you're going to have to end up using a combination of the two of these. Uh, it really is going to take just massive repeated testing so people can be confident in who has had it, who should be protected from it, who's safe to go outside, who should stay quarantined. And again, I, I know there are really smart folks from industry working with uh, some of the federal agencies to get this up and running, but that is really what I've been looking the most at to try and get a read on, on when we think it's going to be uh, able to reopen parts of the economy. That was a very helpful overview. You know, there, there's a topic I've been meaning to raise, uh, and I think you're uh, uh, qualified to speak about this, which is, um, and this has been in the in the media, uh, you know, throughout, but um, I think we'll be focused on more and more as we get through this. And that's from a national security standpoint, are there changes that, uh, that are likely to occur? I mean, the answer, I'm leading the witness, there, there will be some changes here in industries and businesses. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that? Because you, I know this is something you think about, you look at. It, you know, might be it might affect even the way you start thinking about investing. Uh, but that's a, it's a topic that is going to get to the front burner here once we start to see a way through this. I do. I, I think there's there's two things that obviously come to mind. One near term and tactical. One more theoretical, but considerably scarier. And the first is just frankly looking at our supply chains, uh, and we have spent decades uh, offshoring. Uh, the production of all sorts of goods, including mission-critical ones. And we are now finding that we have adversaries that are threatening not to supply us with things like active pharmaceutical ingredients, with personal protective equipment, uh, and it's exactly what we need. <laughs> so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, sort of the re-onshoring or re-domestication of the production of certain critical goods, uh, especially for things like a health crisis, uh, come back. And does that come with higher production costs? Absolutely. But you're essentially paying for insurance that you have access to it in the time of crisis. The second one, though, is, is that really if I look for taking Jack's uh, quote on being an optimist, uh, if I look for the silver lining in this crisis, I, I don't mean to marginalize the virus. There's been a lot of deaths. It's been tragic. But in the scheme of how terrible this virus could have been, it has been pretty mild with relatively low mutation rate, relatively uh, low fatality rate. And it is just a fact, as much as I hate to say it, that we are approaching a time when engineering of biology is becoming a distributed technology. And it's sort of following a similar path to what computer programming did. You know, in the 60s, you had to run the computer department at Harvard or MIT to write a software program. And now you've got first graders learning to code in elementary school. And it's, it's the same thing happening with biology. And so whereas a, a kid in the 90s might have gotten a rejected prom date and written up a new computer virus to get back at his classmates, 
I don't think you have to squint that hard to believe that somebody that has access to engineering a weaponized virus that gets into the broader community. I mean, look how look how closely related we all are. And so why I say this is a silver lining is that this event has really highlighted just how woefully unprepared the country and the world are really to defend against uh, biological pathogens. And so my strong expectation is that you are going to see massive amount of DOD investments going into biopreparedness. Uh, I think you'll invest in technologies that can scale up quickly for testing, for producing antibodies, for vaccines. And, you know, before September 11th, I don't know what our national anti-terrorism budget was, but I think it's up, you know, orders of magnitude since then. And I don't know that biopreparedness will rise to the same level, but I expect it to be a pretty massive investment and something that's uh, on the forefront of a lot of constituents' minds, which should get the attention of Washington. That's very interesting. Uh, can, can, I'm going to give you the, uh, the last question um, before I wrap up, and you get to close on... Uh, uh, on an optimistic note for uh, all of our clients and, and colleagues and listeners. So uh, what gives you the most optimism at this point in time, uh, you know, roughly six weeks into this, uh, you know, as we're, uh, as we're looking forward? Oh, man. Um, I think in the near term, I, I'm most optimistic that we're going to have a surge in testing volumes coming online that shine a light on the problem. Right now, we're operating in a bit of a fog. I think in the medium term, uh, let's see. I mean, a vaccine will be fantastic. I think it's further out. I'll go with antibody development. I think the uh, some of the advances in the biological tools uh, for discovering and understanding biology, for scaling it up, uh, have come really a long way in just the last few years. And you know, the, the classic example would be taking the blood of a patient who is been exposed to and cleared the virus and isolating their antibodies and just injecting those antibodies into a sick patient will help them clear the virus. Uh, it is now just possible to take one sample of that, find some of the best performing ones and scale it up in 10,000 liter tanks uh, and be able to produce really an active immunization uh, really quickly. So it won't give you forever protection, but I think it's gonna be a pretty cool tool uh, in the arsenal that just wasn't really possible uh, you know, five or 10 years ago even. Uh, that's terrific, and it is a, a great optimistic note for us to pull it together. So, uh, Brian, uh, many thanks. Uh, Jack uh, and Shelley, Brian, the three of you, the breadth of uh, insight, expertise, and experience is frankly, and as the moderator, I can say this uh, modestly on your uh, behalf, uh, staggering. Uh, so I would uh, tell, um, you know, from all of uh, us at uh, Rockefeller Capital Management, for all of our clients and colleagues and uh, friends of Rockefeller on the phone, please uh, enjoy the weekend, uh, stay healthy, safe, and upbeat. All three of, uh, of our panelists uh, look to strike an optimistic note. Uh, I, uh, as you all know, I like to close everything with a quote, and, and I'm going to borrow Mr. Brennan's uh, since I like it so much, uh, and, and he threw it out early on here. So uh, Winston Churchill, who's certainly somebody's uh, leadership style that people look to uh, a lot of the time, but uh, in particular right now, uh, did say, as Jack said, and I'll repeat it, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity, and optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. Uh, those words and many other words of, uh, of Mr. Churchill uh, can, uh, can provide all of us comfort as we continue to work through this. Look forward to talking with you all again in the near future. We have... Uh, a terrific group or individual lined up uh, on Sequential Fridays going forward.
uh, over the next weeks uh, and, and even months uh, as uh, our objective at Rockefeller Capital Management to what Shelley said is to uh, stand up to the brand that we uh, espouse and that uh, we think uh, Rockefeller stands for, and that is differentiated advice and counsel, trusted uh, Jack's point around, uh, you know, the importance of, uh, of being trusted. Uh, so that's what we're doing, and we're going to continue to be in front of you with uh, uh, the kinds of insights you heard here from Jack, Shelley, and Brian. So many thanks to the three of them again, and all the best to everybody for the weekend.